Thessalonians, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Pew Bible in front of you. All right. Mm. By the way, before I get started, hey, I'm holding two separate sermons in my hand. Hands. One sermon was a sermon that I was going to preach if Donald Trump got reelected. <laughs> this sermon is the sermon I was going to preach if Joe Biden got elected. Can anybody tell me the difference between these two sermons? They're exactly the same, okay? And that's probably all the commentary you're going to get from me on this election. All right, so let's go ahead and read the text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's, for context... Let's remember where we are. We'll start in chapter 2, verse 1. All this morning's sermon is really going to be grounded in verse 5, and really just like four words in in verse 5, but let's just start in chapter 2, verse 1 for context. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. About a year ago, Chancellor Langford sent me a link to an Instagram page called uh, Preacher Sneakers. Have you guys seen this Preacher Sneakers Instagram page? Once he sent it to me, uh, I spent, well, actually, I ignored it at first, because if I looked at every crazy thing that Chancellor Langford sent me, it'd be never get anything done. But then, once I finally looked at it, I, I spent 30 minutes just scrolling through this whole Instagram page. And let me tell you how this page works. What they do is they, they grab uh, an image of some celebrity preacher or, you know, evangelist or some hotshot who's on the conference circuit, right? And they have a picture of him preaching on stage or teaching on stage, And and that's in the left side of the screen. And then on the upper right side of the screen, they have a close-up, like a zoomed-in shot of the shoes that he's wearing, right? So pretend I'm not... You can only do that if you're preaching at a venue where they don't have a pulpit. But, you know, pretend like you could see me, right? And the the shot's just zoomed in on my shoes. And then in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen, they have the retail price of the shoes that the preacher is wearing. Uh Uh-oh, Indeed. And uh, let me just give you six random posts from this account that I selected for you. Stephen Furtick, one picture that they had of him, his shoes, $965. Three separate posts of a guy named Chad Veach. I guess I'm, I'm out of the loop on cool hipster preacher guys, but never heard of him. One pair of shoes, $1,045. 
One pair of shoes, $2,500. Another pair of shoes, $700. Judah Smith, out of Seattle, wearing a pair of $800 shoes. Erwin McManus, wearing a $1,000 pair of shoes. John Gray, on two separate occasions, wearing a $3,700 pair of shoes. On another occasion, wearing a $5,600 pair of shoes. And Carl Lentz, wearing an $800 pair of shoes. Now, what is being implied by this account, which is uh, no longer active, I wonder, you know, cease and desist order? I, I don't know, but no longer active. What's being implied is that these men are greedy. That's the implication, that they're lovers of money and that they're using their ministry platforms to get rich. And really, who could blame the people who created this Instagram account uh, for being suspicious when you consider the public face of American Christianity, from American evangelists staying in $30,000 a night suites as they hit the road, to TBN pastors purchasing $20,000 commodes, to supposed ministers of the gospel saying that they need their own private jet. There is no shortage of reasons to believe that these expensive shoe-wearing preachers are in it for the money. But here's the thing. Merely owning a pair of expensive shoes, even really expensive shoes, even a few pairs of really expensive shoes, is not necessarily proof that someone is greedy. It could be indicative of greed, but it's not necessarily the case. Maybe a pastor is already wealthy from a previous business venture that he did before he went into the ministry, and his, you know, his wardrobe is just a vestige of that. See what I did there, vestige? Anybody? Thanks, guys. That's in my notes, by the way. Or consider another possibility. Uh, people like to bless their pastors with little gifts every now and then to say, you know, we love you, we honor you, that, that sort of thing. Uh, and maybe, maybe a wealthy person in these guys' churches or their ministries wanted to bless them with really nice shoes. Like maybe Chad Veach, maybe somebody wanted to give him three pairs of shoes that were over $500 a piece as a blessing to him. Maybe he's not greedy, but just the recipient of tremendous generosity of the sneaker variety. And maybe Joyce Meyer's $20,000 commode was also a gift from a generous benefactor of the commode variety. Who's to say other than a U.S. Senate investigation? Now, the point here is that we all know that ministers of the gospel shouldn't be greedy. But how do we know who is greedy and who isn't? Do we just look at their shoes to try to find out? There are some sins like sexual immorality, drunkenness, violence, abusiveness. That you, can just, you can just kind of put your finger on, right? They can't remain hidden for long. But there are other kinds of sins in leadership that would disqualify you from leadership that are, are not so easy to discern. First Peter says that you shouldn't have a domineering leader. Well, how do you know what a domineering leader is? That's not something that like, you just see them say or do something on one occasion and you say, ah, you're a domineering leader, you're out of there. Right? It's like a pattern that you discern over months and perhaps even years. Now consider the sin of greed. How do you discern whether or not a leader in God's church is greedy? I mean, it's not like they go around forthrightly professing that they are greedy. It's very important for us to have a very practical answer to this question. Because doing so, having an answer to this question, will allow us to safeguard the church from men who preach the gospel from false motives. 
impure motives. You'll remember that's what the context of this entire section is about in 1 Thessalonians. Paul is saying, I'm preaching the gospel from pure motives, not out of this bad motive or that bad motive or that bad motive. And one of the bad motives that he talks about is greed. It's supremely important that we make sure that our leaders do not lead from impure motives like greed. I mean, that's one of the qualifications for being an elder. Take 1 Timothy 3.3. It says that an elder must not be a drunkard, he must not be violent, he must not be quarrelsome, and he must not be a lover of money. The same thing is true of deacons. I prefer the KJV, not greedy for filthy lucre. But deacons, they must be not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. So, the leaders of God's people must not be greedy, but how can we discern the sin of greed? In a prospective leader or even in a current leader, like an elder or a deacon or a missionary, that's what we're going to find out this morning. So let me pray and then we'll dive in. Lord, I pray that your people's hearts would be hungry to receive sustenance from you this morning. Would you give it to us through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit? Amen. So, just go back and look at verses 3 through 5 again, just to refresh yourselves. I know we just read it, but let's just make sure we're grounded. Paul says in verse 3, For our appeal, that's his gospel proclamation and his whole ministry, does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. For Paul, it is a very big deal that his readers know that his gospel ministry is not grounded in greedy motives. Because if it was, it would invalidate his ministry. His ambassadorship would come into doubt. And ultimately, on the last day, he knows that his labors would be shown to be worthless. Do you remember what Paul said in his letter to the Corinthians? He said, listen, one day God is going to judge everyone's work. And he says this. He says, all their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. And that day, that's the day of the Lord, right? When God finally renders his perfect judgment. He says, it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder, that's the gospel laborer, will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Now, there's some stuff there that we could talk about in a different sermon, but the, the point here is that Paul knows that one day his gospel labors are going to be evaluated by the all-consuming, all-discerning fire of the Lord's judgment. And so he wants to be sure, and he wants his readers to be sure that his motives in ministry are pure. He probably wants to make this clear in light of a couple of different things. Number one, he's surrounded by people with impure motives who are preaching the gospel out of greed. If you were paying attention when our sister Morgan Smith read from uh, 2 Corinthians this morning, Paul was saying one of the main reasons why he doesn't receive any money for his preaching of the gospel is because there are a bunch of other people who are going around and only preaching the gospel for money and he wants to be distinct from them. Another reason why Paul may want to make sure his readers really believe and understand this point is because the Bible is full of examples of ungodly leaders who take advantage of God's people because of their greed. So you may have been wondering, like, Sean, when Morgan read that passage from 1 Samuel about those priests who were, like, sticking their forks in the meat 
Well, what was that all about? It was all about greedy leaders. Their greed took a little bit of a different form in that context, but the, the idea is the same. Greedy leaders. Jesus, when he attacks the Pharisees, this is what he says about them. He says, you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Paul was a Pharisee. He knows that world. And he hates that world. He wants to make sure that he knows and that everyone else knows that he is not a hustler. He's not a peddler of God's word. Therefore, now that's kind of the exegesis of what's going on. That's it's pretty simple, not, not too difficult. Now, therefore, the practical application is I want to make sure that this local church has the ability to discern leaders whose ministry does not spring from pure motives. I want the members of this church to have the ability to recognize a leader or a potential leader who is leading from a place of greed. Does that make sense? So that's what we're going to spend all of our time drilling down into this morning by way of application. But before I do that, I want to give you two caveats, okay? Caveat number one, I'm not going to address any of the obvious cases. If you see a guy wearing a $7,000 suit and he's got two rings on each finger driving a Maserati, you know, just assume that he's a greedy leader, okay? I'm not going to talk about those guys this morning. Remember also what Morgan read. He says that a lot of times these false apostles come disguised, right? So the greediest of leaders are probably not guys walking around with a gold chain hanging down from their necks, you know, or spinners on their... Is that still a thing, spinners on your car? No, that's not a thing anymore. Okay. Uh, caveat number two. I am not trying to cultivate a culture of suspicion towards leaders in this sermon. All right? I don't want you to be like, hey, Sean, let me see your checkbook, bro. You know, hey, Grant, you know, how's your tithing going, buddy? Are you greedy? It's not what I want from this morning's sermon. What I want is for us to not go sniffing out greed, but to have such finely tuned nostrils, if you will, that when we smell it in the air, we can put our finger on it. We go, oh, yeah, that's a greedy leader. There's a big difference there. So with that said, I've got nine points for you this morning. Uh, they're going to be pretty quick, so don't worry. I saw the fear in some of your eyes just now. Nine points in this morning's sermon. The first seven are going to kind of function together, right? These are going to be the seven marks of a greedy leader. Seven things for you to recognize in a leader who's leading from a position of greed. And then I've got two extraneous points. So let's jump in. Mark number one of a greasy, greedy leader, laziness. Let's just start with what we see right here in the text. Go down to verse nine with me. Paul says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You remember back in chapter one, verse five, Paul said, hey guys, everything that I'm saying about my ministry, you know that it's true because you saw it when I was with you. And so what Paul is saying here is that, listen, I, I, I labored intensely for the sake of the gospel while I was among you. He reminds them of that again in 2 Thessalonians. He says, we didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to you. Now, Paul isn't saying this because he has some objection to receiving money from the churches that he ministers to. He actually received support from churches throughout his entire ministry, as well as private individuals, wealthy individuals like Lydia, 
They, she basically pumped money into his ministry because she believed in him. So that's not a bad thing. It's a, a good thing. Additionally, Paul also talks about taking money from one church so that he can serve another church. In 2 Corinthians 11.8, he says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. Okay? Even when Paul was in Thessalonica, and he says here, I didn't take anything from you. I worked night and day. You know, he was a tent maker, right? I'm just out there grinding and hustling. When I'm not preaching and studying and praying, I'm making tents. He also says this. This is from the church at Philippi. You Philippians know from the time of my first mission work in Macedonia how no church shared in supporting my ministry except you. Now pay attention to this part. You sent contributions repeatedly to take care of my needs even while I was in Thessalonica. So even while Paul was a tent maker in Thessalonica, he still needed outside financial support. And the Philippian Christians gave it to him. So Paul was not against receiving financial support from churches. The point here is that Paul was willing to work hard for the sake of the gospel. He was a hard worker. And in his mind, his hard work was at least in part part of the argument for the purity of his motives. That's what he's doing here in verse 9. He's making an argument. Back in verse 5, he says, you know I'm not greedy. Now in verse 9, he goes, the evidence is like, you saw how hard I worked when I was among you. When, uh, when I was in boot camp, we had a drill, drill instructor, a drill sergeant, uh, who he always led from the front. You know, like a lot of the drill, drill sergeants, whenever it's like the day is over, they're gone, they disappear. This guy was out there ha- helping us practice with our shooting drills. He was helping us, you know, as brand new privates learn how to march. He was spending extra time. He would take us out to the track and people like me who couldn't run very well, he was helping me get my running up, you know. And he didn't make any extra money for that, right? This is a dude, very strangely, who just loved the army. He just loved the military. And he just wanted to see America's fighting force built up as strong as it could possibly be, Team America, you know. And so he was going to give all of his time and all of his talent to, to help these soldiers be the best that they could absolutely be, even if he didn't make any extra money for it, and he did not make any extra money for it. I think his hard work there was evidence of his pure motives. Now, consider in contrast a man named Jorge that we partnered with in the jungles of Peru who turned out to be uh, a sexual predator and also uh, a very greedy person who was laboring in the jungles. American churches were funneling money into this guy as he was doing his work, and it turns out he was just taking their money and, and, and using it to do really bad things. When Amber and I were, before we knew all this, laboring with him, when we would go to the villages, we'd be chopping down trees or clearing the field with a machete or carrying logs up the riverbank or moving rice bags or you know, plucking chickens, doing whatever we were doing. You know what Jorge was doing? He was just sitting there not helping, not doing anything, maybe supervising, you know. That is not Paul. Paul is in there. He's in the mix. He is laboring. He's grinding. And I saw the same thing when I first got to know this church. One of the things that kind of drew me here, even though there wasn't much to draw me here, was like as I got to know Grant, for example, I saw he was working 50 hours a week and then, you know, wife and kids, but he was also like meeting up with me every Friday morning for discipleship and reading books and preparing sermons and praying. And then I got to know Allison, she's up here doing all this stuff. And then Michael Waugh and Mike Phillips. And 
as I got to know this church, I saw there were, uh, there's kind of a core group of people here who are really expending themselves for the gospel. And I said, there's something pure there in those motives. Laziness in gospel labors is a sure sign of a greedy-hearted minister. But a willingness to work hard for the sake of the mission, regardless of the pay, is at least, I think, indicative. Not proof, but it is indicative of someone who is leading from pure motives. And by the way, that's the kind of person that when you do pay someone, you need to make sure that you pay them well and take care of them because they're doing good work and loving and leading God's people well. And also, let me be clear before moving on. Uh, Point number one is my longest point. Let me be clear before moving on from point number one. Just because a leader is a hard worker does not mean that he is not greedy. You can be a hard worker and be greedy. But I'm always suspicious of a lazy guy in ministry. Point number two. This is kind of related to the first point, okay? It probably could have been point one B, but point two, an opposition to suffering in labor. So one of the marks of a greedy leader is an opposition to suffering in labor. If you look at the language that Paul uses in verse 9 to talk about his work, he uses two different words. Look there. He says, he says, our labor and toil. Now that word labor, when you look at it in the Greek and how it was used amongst Greek people, it just basically referred to people who just did normal daily work. But this word toil... This word amplifies that word that he uses for work. Toil refers to just the grinding, the struggle, the scratching your living from the dry ground, right? That's the kind of labor that Paul was doing. He wasn't just working. He was struggling in his work. He says it here. He says night and day, right? He wants you to know that he's not just out there working, you know, a little nine to five on the side. It's like he's consumed with this, and it's very, very difficult for him. Uh, I wonder if you've ever had a job before where you had like a pretty sweet setup, you know, where like for whatever reason you get put in the position or you get put on the shift or you get the supervisor where like you go in and you make the same amount of money as everyone else, but you really don't have to do anything, you know, you just kind of get to chill, maybe sit on the internet all night, right? That's a, that's a pretty sweet gig. Paul's saying, I did not have that, <laughs> okay? And in ministry, I, I can tell you what a pretty sweet gig looks like. It looks like a ministry that's always fully funded. It looks like a ministry where there's no trials, where the sheep don't bite, where the persecution doesn't come, where the pastor always gets to go home at the normal hour and never has to come in late at night, take phone calls in the middle of the night. It's where you don't lose any sleep and you don't feel beat down by the ministry. But what happens when you're a real pastor and almost none of those things are guaranteed to come. You'd be surprised how often a pastor quits his job and says, these people don't pay me enough for this. Right? There are a lot of leaders who are very happy, excuse me, very happy to lead when the leading is easy, when the work is just like normal work. But when the labor becomes toil, they tuck tail. They head for the fields. I think that's indicative of a leader who's leading out of wrong motives. Sometimes greed doesn't take the form that you think it is. You think it's somebody who's just trying to get rich. But what I've seen in ministry is that sometimes greed is just like, oh, I don't have another degree that I could, you know, for a field that I could go into. And I've been a pastor for 20 years. And even though I don't know if I believe these things anymore, I don't know what else I would do for a living. And this is how my family gets by. So I'm just going to keep being a pastor. 
Now let me add one more caveat here in point number two. There are obviously times when a leader must step down because they're genuinely broken down. They're overworked. They're underpaid. They're underloved and cared for. But you can usually tell the difference between someone like that and someone who just heads for the hills as soon as things get hard, right? Point number three, a lavish lifestyle. A mark of a greedy leader is a lavish lifestyle. This one seems like it should be pretty easy to identify, but, but maybe not. I mean, first of all, let's remember the fact that we're Americans and that I think nobody in this room would consider themselves to be living lavishly. Uh, there are like 100 million people in like India and China who would disagree with you, okay? So part of that is like lavishness is relative. The other thing is you have to consider a number of different factors when talking about whether or not someone's lifestyle is lavish or excessive. So what if a leader were very generous, hardworking, frugal, financially savvy, and he takes really good care of his personal possessions, and he spent 20 years slowly but not greedily accumulating those nice things? But you look at a 60-year-old guy driving a Camaro, you know, living in a nice five-bedroom house in a nice part of town. Is he necessarily greedy? Is he living a lavish lifestyle? Or is that just the fruit of uh, godliness and wisdom over the course of a long life? Right? We don't want to be too quick to just, anytime somebody has something a little bit nicer than us, kind of accuse them of greed because they're living a lavish lifestyle. However, with all these qualifications in mind, I think we typically know extravagance when we see it, okay? Okay. Which is why this Preacher Sneakers Instagram page was so popular. I mean, within a month, it had over 100,000 followers. And within two months, it had a million followers. It was just, it was doing great. And it was because we all just look at something like that and we know our pastors shouldn't be wearing $5,000 pairs of shoes. I thought about adding like a little extra argument here, trying to explain a little bit more why that's the case. But honestly, I don't feel like I need to. If you think that it's appropriate for a minister of the gospel to be wearing $5,000 shoes, I think the onus is on you to prove that to me. Especially in light of Jesus and his call to suffering, his lowly state in this life, and the example of all of his followers. Whether we can articulate why or not, we know that there's just something not right about a minister of the gospel wearing $3,000 shoes. We want our leaders to be marked by generosity and we want them to model self-sacrifice, faithful stewardship. And we can generally perceive when a leader's lifestyle is lavish. One Supreme Court justice famously said that pornography is very difficult to define, but we know it when we see it. I think the same thing is true of a lavish lifestyle. Point number four, lack of transparency in finances. Uh, two members' meetings ago, uh, a member of the church pulled me aside after the members meeting and he gave me a little talking to, okay? And the talking to was because I didn't present a budget to the church as we were making a financial decision. And uh, the, all the members of our church, they go, oh yeah, that sounds like something Sean would do, right? Like a, like a real Homer Simpson, like dough kind of moment. That's not good. But there's a big difference between that and a minister of the gospel who is being guarded about finances, who's being sneaky with finances, who's not being transparent with either his own finances or the church's finances. Right? There's a big difference between a pastor who makes a bonehead move and forgets to give a budget out 
and somebody who refuses to publish the budget. Leaders must role model an appropriate level of transparency for the congregation in all things. And this is true for finances as well. That doesn't mean that I'm going to publish my, my bank account records for the members of this church. And, you know, it, it doesn't mean that anyone who receives money from God's people should, like, have to constantly open up their financial life to the congregation. But it does mean that anyone who receives God's money from God's people for God's work should be happily, readily available to show what they're doing with that money. I have had a conversation before with a pastor where just very casually, I was actually trying to think about something different and just, it, it kind of, we got there through a circuitous route in the conversation and I just said, hey man, how much, how much does your church pay you? How much do you make? And he blushed and he started stuttering and stumbling and, and kind of tried to move the conversation in a different direction. Well, why do you think you would do that? I've shared my salary in our members' meetings if you ask me how much I make, I'll tell you. If you ask me how much I give, I'll tell you. Not because I'm proud. There's nothing to be proud about. But if you ask me, I'll tell you because transparency is important. A pastor is entrusted with the oversight of the church's finances. So if I'm playing fast and loose with God's money in my own life, well, how can I be trusted with the money of God's people in the church? This is a particularly egregious issue with missionaries. Friends, please, please, please listen to me. I know that some of you support missionaries outside of the local church and you're giving here. Uh, I hope that it's in addition to your giving to this church. But do not assume that just because someone is a missionary that they are handling that money well. Please, don't only check their doctrinal fidelity, and maybe you've never even thought about that, but do check their doctrinal fidelity but also ask them about their finances. Ask them for a budget. Ask them to show you what they're going to be doing with that money because I have seen it. Amber and I went to the mission field with nothing. I mean nothing. So we didn't have anything to take advantage of. But I have seen missionaries use money in ways on the mission field that I thought was at best negligent, at worst terribly sinful and ultimately disqualifying. Point number five. A mark of a greedy minister is that he is not on guard. Not on guard. A faithful minister of the gospel knows the danger of riches. We read it today, right? He should know. He should, uh, any minister of the gospel who has any kind of like, position where they use authority and, and handle money in the church uh, should be well acquainted enough with the Bible to know that money is not sinful, but it is super dangerous. And that should compel him to be on guard. Let me just give you an example uh, from a contemporary pastor, John Piper. Listen, listen to what he says. I'm just going to read this to you. He says, in order to fight this first, that's his tendency to greed. He says, I surrender all the copyrights and all the royalties to my books, and I have from the beginning. I surrendered them to Desiring God Foundation, knowing I'd be a millionaire if I didn't. And he's right. He would be... A, a multimillionaire. He says, I am scared out of my wits at being a millionaire. That's a weakness. Some people can handle it. I don't have that gift. The foundation has a board and it keeps $10,000 in the bank and has one meeting a year and we give everything away and we love it. All of it goes to Desiring God and Bethlehem, that's the seminary in the church, except little teeny exceptions for other things in the church. 
Second, I surrender all my honorariums. I didn't do this back in the day when I would only make $100 for a wedding or a funeral here or there. Then I would take Noel, his wife, out to dinner. But this church pays me enough to take Noel out to dinner every day. So one of the ways that I protect myself is, whether it's thousands of dollars because of some big speaking engagement or $100 because of a wedding or a funeral or something like that, I'm just writing it off to the church. Friends, this seems wise to me. I don't think it's a law. I don't think every pastor who makes money necessarily has to do this. You know? uh, I'm going to be making a whopping $600 for this little booklet that I'm about to have published through Crossway, and we just spent $600 on a dishwasher and another $600 on a washer, so I'm going to take that $600 and put it right back in my bank account. I'm not going to sign it over to the church. Amen. Uh, but if I was in Piper's position, I would probably follow that path. It just seems super wise. You know, when you go from $600 for something to $600,000 for something, it seems wise to have guardrails in place, safeguards. When I read Piper's words here, I know that he has one particular parable in mind. I, he, didn't, he doesn't quote it, but I just know it's true. All right, that's the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12. There in Luke 12, we read of a man with a field who has been particularly blessed in his labors, right? He's so blessed that he didn't know what to do with all the excess of the field. So he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy Eat, drink, and be merry. And this is what John Piper could have done, right? I've worked hard. I've been blessed. Now it's time to take it easy and enjoy my wealth. But Piper knows how the parable ends. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Piper knows the dangers of his wealth. And he doesn't want to hear God say to him on the last day, you fool, you let your money become your God. Wealth is not sinful, it's not bad. If you're sitting here thinking, should I be building up my 401k in light of this? Yes, please do. <laughs> Retirement money is good. That's not what we're talking about here. Wealth is like a sharp knife, which can be used to do really good things. But it can also kill which is why Jesus begins this parable with these words. Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. That's especially important for ministers of the gospel. Let me share one more example with you from John Wesley. See what I'm doing? Calvinist, Arminian. See, we're all friends. Wesley had just finished buying some pictures for his room when one of the chambermaids came to his door. It was a winter day, and he noticed that she had only a thin linen gown to wear for protection against the cold. He reached into his pocket to give her some money for a coat and found he had little left. It struck him that the Lord was not pleased with how he had spent his money, and he asked himself, Will thy master say, Well done, good and faithful servant? Or will he say, You fool? Perhaps as a result of this incident, in 1731, Wesley began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give to the poor. He records that one year his income was 30 pounds and his living expenses was 28 pounds, so he had two pounds to give away. The next year his income had doubled, 
but he still lived on 28 pounds and gave 32 pounds away. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds. Again, he lived on 28 pounds and gave 62 pounds away. The fourth year, he made 120 pounds and lived again on 28 pounds and gave 92 pounds to the poor. Those are British dollars, by the way, in case you were wondering. So you remember how we were talking about extravagant living? You think John Wesley would have been accused of extravagant living? What about John Piper sitting there in his robe and slippers in the same house that he's lived in since the 1970s in, in the bad part of Minneapolis? You think anyone's accusing him of extravagant living? What about the Apostle Paul? He could say to the Thessalonians, you know that I'm not doing this because of greed because you've seen the way that I live. You've seen that I don't live extravagantly and you've seen me be on guard. Point number six, preferential treatment in the church. Now we're cooking. These are going to be really fast. Uh, turn with me to James chapter two real quick. James chapter two, verses one through four. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I've, he's talking to the congregation here, but I've seen pastors who do this. We know that this is true. Pastors, leaders in the church, presidents of seminaries, leaders of missionary organizations who treat wealthy people like they are different or better than people in the church who have less money. James says this is evil, and friends, he is right. So here's my quick application on this point. If you see an elder or a deacon or a missionary or any leader in God's church treating wealthier Christians with prefer preferential treatment, they are definitely in sin. They are almost certainly taken captive by greed. And they should absolutely be rebuked. And if they are on staff where you have a choice to do something about it, they need to be fired. Point number seven, lack of generosity. This one's going to be pretty quick, too. It's a little difficult to, to know how generous uh, someone is. Like, if you were to look at the way that like, our giving to this church is broken down, it might not make sense to some of you guys. Part of our giving is Amber cleans the church twice a week, every week for a month, which is like the equivalent of $300. And then we give on top of that. And so you would look at that like, oh, I don't know about that. Then there's like a, another, another weird issue where like Jesus says that when you give, you need to not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. So there's some aspect of your generosity that like you don't need to like, you know, lock it away black box style, but you shouldn't be flaunting it in people's faces, right? So how do we know how generous our leaders are being? Well, I think, I think it's, it's pretty easy to know what kind of a, a, a person someone is by looking to see how generous they are in every area of their life. It's very rare that you'll find someone who's generous with their time and their talents who's, you know, generous with their home, generous with their emotions, generous with their family, generous in their overall disposition, who's greedy with money, right? So you may not be able to know exactly 
whether or not uh, your leaders are generous according to what your standards of financial generosity are. But you can look at their overall lives and say, are they generous with everything that God has given them? And if you think that they are, that's encouraging. Okay. Now those were the first seven points of the sermon. I'm about to pull the e-brake on you guys, okay? We're about to bring the sermon to a screeching halt just for a second before moving on. I've spent the majority of this morning's sermon talking about how to discern greed in a, in a leader in the church. But now I want to talk just for a second on when to discern greed in leadership in the church, okay? I'm sure you guys have heard the phrase before, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Instead of like going in and getting a stint put in your heart, maybe just don't eat fat back bacon every day, right? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Well, the same thing is true when it comes to leaders and and leading out of impure motives like greed, right? We would do very well as a church to make sure that we evaluate on the front end whether or not someone is greedy rather than trying to figure out and scramble how to cover up or deal, cover up, deal with the mess that they've created when we find out that they're greedy on the back end. So whether you're thinking about a pastor who has oversight of the church's finances, not the deacons, the pastors, or uh, those who have oversight of some finances for the practical needs of the church, like a deacon, or whether you're thinking about a missionary that's getting money funneled into him from the church for work outside of the church, the only way that you can know that any of these leaders is not greedy is if you actually know them. So here's my plug for meaningful church membership, okay? The only way that you can actually really know that someone is leading from pure motives and that they aren't greedy is if you actually have a working relationship with them, right? Making an evaluation about someone's character is not as simple as like a metal detector or like a Geiger counter. You know, you just kind of wave the wand and beep, 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 beep. You know, I detect the sin of greed in their heart. It's, it doesn't work like that. No, what we're doing when we're looking at people and evaluating them is we're looking for tendencies and impulses and actions that all coalesce to paint a picture of greed. And the only way you can discern patterns like that in someone's life is not through a resume. I can't look at a resume and go, oh, this dude's definitely not greedy. We should hire him as our next pastor, Right? You can't send me a missions uh, video where, you know, you're trying to raise money and you send me a seven-minute YouTube clip and I can watch it and go, oh, they're definitely not greedy. Now, the only way that I can really discern these kinds of patterns in your life is if we do life together. Let me just use an example. I'm going to use young Will, who we prayed for this morning. <laughs> not so young anymore. Although you were recently called a 15-year-old. Yeah, 15. Yeah, that's right. We won't say what else was said. Uh, Will is a potential future leader in this church. He was an intern, and now he's my pastoral assistant, and Lord willing, one day he will be an elder. Now, I have to make sure, and you have to make sure, that Will is not greedy. That's one of the disqualifying uh, things of an elder. He can't be greedy. Well, how can you know that Will's not greedy? Well, every person in this church will just say, because we know Will, right? We just know him. We've done life together with him. I'll say the same thing. I've known him for five years. He's one of the least greedy people that I know. He's one of the most generous people that I know. 
That is a very different scenario than, you know, hiring a new pastor and he just comes and gives you his resume and preaches a sermon and, oh, I really like the way his teeth shine from the pulpit. Let's hire him. All right, moving on. Point number eight. This is where we're going to add some clarification, a little little more clarification in the sermon. We're almost done. I want to specify what greed is not, okay? I don't want you guys to be a bunch of greed hunters with no discernment. Greed is not, and I got, these are three sub points, okay? Bear with me. Greed is not a pastor or a missionary or a parachurch leader wanting to be paid for their labors. You may remember from our time in 1 Corinthians, Paul made it a point to say that he did not accept any pay from the Corinthians. But there was a very specific reason why he did that. It was because he didn't want to be accused of things that other people were doing. But that argument is actually inside of a larger argument that he makes in that chapter, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter ooh, 8. It's part of a larger argument that he makes where he basically argues that those who labor for the gospel should be paid by the gospel. This is what he says. He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? All right, like I'm here to serve in the army and I'll pay my own salary. Nobody does that. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does the law not say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it needs to tread out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Here he's saying, what's the principle that I'm pulling out? Does he not certainly speak for our sake, ministers of the gospel? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Now, he's not being a prosperity preacher there. He's not saying, I gave you guys spiritual stuff so you need to give me a bunch of goodies. He's just saying, listen, I've given you guys the gospel. I've labored in the field. I've been like a soldier marching and going to war for you. Is it too much to ask that as I poured into your soul in that way, you take care of me and my family financially? Second subpoint here, a gospel minister being paid well for their work is not a sign of greed. Being well-paid is relative, right? Being well-paid in Darfur versus the barrios of Mexico versus Manhattan versus Decatur, Alabama. It's all relative. But taking care of gospel laborers in such a way that they are well taken care of is a good thing, and it speaks highly of the church. It encourages your pastor, and it protects his ministry from burnout. You can see this principle in, second, excuse me, in Titus 3.13. Speaking about his fellow co-laborers in the gospel, Paul tells Titus to do his best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they lack nothing, right? These guys are already going through it. They're going through the ringer being my gospel laborers. So make sure that as you send them out, they don't have to go begging for money. Make sure that they have everything that they could possibly need. That's a good impulse for you to have for your church. I'm not just saying that because I'm being paid on staff. I'm thinking about Will. If we hire Will, I want to apply this principle to him if it's possible with our resources in this church. If I'm gone and one day you hire an even better pastor to come and replace me, I want you to pay him well so that he doesn't have to worry about how he's going to put food on the table for his family so that he can be wholly and entirely devoted to leading you, loving you, and serving you. Does that make sense? 
Finally, sub-point number three here, a pastor asking for a salary that is sufficient to take care of his family. This is kind of the same thing, but I just want to make a little distinction here. I'll just read the scripture to you. 1 Timothy 5, 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So if you get to the point where you tell me, Sean, listen, we can't pay you anymore. I'll say, guys, I love you so much, and I hope that this goes well for you at this church. But I, we've done the poor missionary thing. I can't put my family through that. Uh, I got to go somewhere where I can actually take care of my family because I don't want to be worse than an unbeliever. Okay. So, point number nine. This, this last point is really just an exhortation for you, the members of the church, in light of everything that we've said so far. And I, I think I just want to let Peter uh, speak to you in his own words, okay? In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3. through 3. Now, there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow in their depravity, and because of them, the way of the truth will be defamed. In their greed, these false teachers will exploit you with deceptive words. So not only does the minister of the gospel need to be on guard for greed in his own heart, Members of 6th Avenue, you need to be on guard for people who want to creep into the church and bring destruction with them because of their greed. And of course, the sermon wouldn't be complete without remembering the reason why we're here, the reason why we're gathered, the reason why we care about any of this. It's because the gospel of Jesus Christ, the same verse that I began the service with, I want to use to remind you of the gospel, which speaks in financial terms. And in this scripture we're about to read, the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus is our ultimate exemplar in how to think about how we handle our wealth, how we live our lives in relation to our money, how we handle impulses of greed in our heart. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. This is the opposite of greed. This is the God of the universe sacrificing of himself. Why? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And if you are in Christ, you are the richest people in the world. And if you are not in Christ, you are the poorest person in the world. But his grace, the riches of his grace, are made available to all, and you don't have to apply for a loan. Right? He's just making it freely available to you this morning. So if you don't know him, call out to him. His coffers will never run dry. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you will protect me, protect future leaders in this church, and just protect this church in general from the sin of greed. Help every person who ministers in the life of this church to have pure motives May our hearts stand with full assurance before you as we say that we preach the gospel because we love you and because you've saved us. Amen.